0: Good morning. My name is Micah. Welcome to Northfield Christian Fellowship. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter one. During this uh, Advent season for the month of December, we're going to be here in the book of Luke in the first two chapters for these next four weeks, focusing on the coming of our Savior. Our plan is to look at four different individuals in these first couple chapters of Luke. Today, we're going to look at John the Baptist and his role in preparation, preparing the people for the coming of the Lord. Next week, Don Stuber plans to look at Mary and her cultivation, opening up her heart to to God using her to be the mother of our Savior. That will be followed by Rick Sherman, Then he's going to look at Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, and his anticipation, the coming of our Savior. And then on Christmas Day, Doug will speak on celebration, the birth of our Lord, Jesus Christ. So that's the plan for this month of December, preparation today with John the Baptist, cultivation with Mary, anticipation with Zechariah, celebration then on Christmas Day over the birth of our Savior. And as a bonus, right after Christmas, you'll all get to experience exasperation (laughs) when you take down the tree and clean the house and return half of your gifts. (laughs) Let's pray, though, before I begin. Father, what a season for us to gather together and celebrate the fact that you sent your son, all the promises you made for thousands of years in the Old Testament that you would send a Messiah, a Redeemer, a Savior, God himself, to become man, to become our sacrifice, to become our righteous substitute. And here we celebrate in this season the coming of Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for the season. Thank you for what you did for us. pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 1. Read with me. We're going to start in verse 5, and we're going to go all the way to verse 25 in the book of Luke. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying... Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. You know what drives me crazy when I fly? Delays. That's right, passengers are not the only ones who hate delays. Flight crew gets frustrated also over them. I hate delays, mainly because patience is a virtue that I lack, but also because my job as a pilot is to get you to where you're going quickly. If you wanted to get there slowly, you would take a horse. (laughs) I hate waiting, especially when I have no idea what the reason for the delay is. For the people of Israel during this time here that we just read about, it had been 400 years since God last spoke to them, promising to send the Messiah. 400 years of God's people looking at their watches that didn't even exist yet, saying, any day now. All right, God. They had no idea what the reason was for the delay. God had promised to send his son. Why the delay? During this time, the Israelites suffered under the Greeks and Syrians who forcibly Hellenized them. They desecrated their temple, forbid their religion. Then they dealt with the Romans in their oppressive taxes and imposing military. After 400 years of waiting, most of God's people simply gave up on any hope of a Messiah Ever coming. And instead, they refocused their religion from God to man, no longer trusting God's sovereignty, but instead focusing on man's effort. Their religion became one of legalism, tradition, corruption, hypocrisy. That's what was going on when God brought John the Baptist into the world to prepare the way for Jesus. And it's fitting here in the book of Luke that Luke begins his gospel with John the Baptist because John the Baptist is the bridge between the Old and the New Testaments. John the Baptist is the bridge between Old Testament promises of Christ and the New Testament fulfillment of Christ. John the Baptist is the one God promised back in the book of Malachi when he said, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. After 400 years of silence, God broke his silence through John the Baptist. This happened, verse 5 says in our passage, it happened in the days of Herod, which was around 5 BC, because Herod the Great died in 4 BC. It says there was a name, I'm sorry, there was a priest named Zechariah. There were thousands of priests in Israel during this time. And the priests were organized into 24 divisions. Verse 5 continues to tell us that Zechariah was of the division of Abiah. It goes on to tell us that his wife Elizabeth was from the daughters of Aaron. Luke here is giving us the pedigree of John the Baptist. Not only... Would his father be a priest, but his mother is also of the priestly line. So their child, John the Baptist, would be a Levite through and through, set apart for God's purpose. Verse six says they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. They were righteous. How did they become righteous? same way you and I become righteous, through faith. Just because Christ had not come yet didn't mean righteousness was gained differently in the Old Testament times. Righteousness has always been found through faith. When God made his covenant with Abraham 2,000 years prior to this, the book of Genesis tells us Abraham believed God. He had faith in God, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Later on, as God was about to send the nation of Judah into exile, he told the prophet Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by his faith. Righteousness has always been gained through faith, not through works. Which is what made Zechariah... So different from most of the priests that he worked with. Most of the priests attempted to be righteous through their works. Zechariah was righteous through his faith. But they had no child, verse 7 says, because Elizabeth was barren and, were, and both were advanced in years. So here's the irony. Righteous Zechariah in Elizabeth, would have actually been judged to be unrighteous by all the other priests who were self-righteous. Because to be barren during this time was considered God's judgment, God's punishment on a couple. But Elizabeth's barrenness was no punishment. It was the method God used to work a miracle. Just like he did in the Old Testament with so many women, Sarah, Sarah and Rebecca, and Rachel, and Manoah's wife, and Hannah. God likes bringing promised children through barren women. And by having Elizabeth be barren, God is also giving just a foretaste of the even more spectacular miracle of Jesus' birth through a virgin. In verse 8, we read that, Zechariah was serving as priest before God. Each of the 24 divisions of priests would take turns serving at the temple in Jerusalem for a week. This was one of those weeks for Zechariah. During their week in Jerusalem, the priests would do all sorts of duties. Only a select few of them would ever get the chance to serve inside the temple. So when verse 9 says he was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense, that was the priest's version of playing in the Super Bowl. This was a -a once-in-a-lifetime chance for Zechariah. So he spent the week serving in the holy place inside the temple. Only a veil separated him from the Ark of the Covenant as he burnt incense on the altar of incense. Just being that close to the presence of God struck fear into the priests and caused them to do their job as quickly as possible so they could get out of there with their life without messing up and losing their lives. As the multitude of people were outside praying, all of a sudden in verse 11, an angel appears. When Zechariah saw this angel, verse 12 says he was troubled. Fear fell upon him. The word used for troubled, it means stirred up. And I don't mean stirred up how a princess stirs her tea. I I mean stirred up like how a tornado stirs a mobile home park. He was terrified. I would be too. So the angel says in verse 13, do not be afraid. And he proceeds to give the most amazing promise to Zechariah. Every detail about this promise, it defies all logic. Starting with the words, do not be afraid. Zechariah is in the holy place, right beside the veil that separates him from the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant. He's burning incense, an angel appears and says, don't be afraid. Okay, you don't happen to have a clean pair of underwear I could borrow, do you? The angel goes on to say, your prayer has been heard. Which prayer? The 17,000 prayers that Zechariah and his wife had been praying for the last several decades for a child? Or his prayer that God would send the Messiah after 400 years of, 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 of waiting? I think it was the prayer that Zechariah was in the middle of praying when the angel appeared. I think that's the prayer that has been answered. I think it was the prayer for God to send his Messiah. Because I'm guessing that Zechariah and his wife probably stopped praying for a child long ago after they joined AARP. (laughs) The, The absurdity of the angel's promise, it continues in verse 14. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Joy and gladness, huh? From his wife's shriveled-up womb. Verse 15, he will be great before the Lord. Really? A child of a common priest from the hill country of Judea? Verse 15 continues, he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. So not only is he going to have a son, not only is he going to be great, But he's going to follow the Nazarite footsteps of Samson and Samuel. And he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born? The angel continues this wild promise in verse 16. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. No one has succeeded in doing that since Judas Maccabeus led a revolt against the Syrians 160 years earlier. In verse 17, the angel compares this promised child to Elijah. And he says, he will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The angel here is quoting from Malachi when he says, he will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Everything about this promise defies all logic. No wonder Zechariah was skeptical The entire promise was beyond belief. So Zechariah, in verse 18, he responds, saying, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is an old lady. At our age, a wild night for us consists of brushing each other's dentures. The angel's response must have hit Zechariah like a ton of bricks. He says in verse 19, I am Gabriel. Gabriel, that's the same angel in the Old Testament who caused Daniel to fall down on his face in fear. The angel continues, I stand in the presence of God. Gabriel goes on in verse 19 and 20. He says, I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Remember back in verse 6 when it said Zechariah and his wife were both righteous before God. And yet here in verse 20, he's being chastised for doubting Gabriel's words. Zechariah was righteous. That doesn't mean he was sinless. His sin of unbelief here is not without consequence. Zechariah's consequence was not just being unable to speak. It was also being unable to hear until John the Baptist was born. We know this from verse 62 later on in this chapter. After John the Baptist was born and the people made signs to Zechariah to see what he would name him, if Zechariah could still hear, they wouldn't have had to make signs. They could have asked him, what will you name him? But they made signs to him because he was also deaf. This was a consequence bigger than simply feeling a little silly over not being able to talk. Not being able to speak or hear would prevent Zechariah from performing his duties as a priest until John the Baptist was born. You can't teach the people God's word when you can't talk or hear. Unbelief has consequences, not just for Zechariah, but for all of us. Unbelief hinders us from being used by God. But unbelief does not Hinder God's sovereignty. Which is why he still brought John the Baptist into this world. Verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. The reason they were wondering at his delay. Is because delay meant danger. For all they knew Zechariah may have burned the incense incorrectly. And God struck him dead. It wouldn't be the first time. You remember Aaron's sons back in the book of Leviticus? They offered incense incorrectly, and God sent fire from heaven to consume them. But Zechariah, he did finally come out of the temple in verses 22 and 23, and when he couldn't speak, the people realized that he had seen a vision. After his week had ended, he went back home to his wife, Elizabeth. And his wife conceived in verse 24. And for the first five months of her pregnancy, it says she kept herself hidden. In other words, she kept her pregnancy a secret. Why? God had just worked a miracle. Why did she keep it a secret? Why wasn't she shouting from the rooftop, I'm pregnant, praise God! Pauline Stuber comes and makes an announcement at church that she's pregnant. (laughs) I'm just not going to believe her. But if she's five months pregnant and she's starting to show, now I'll believe her. I'll probably go up to Ken and give him a high five. (laughs) This is why Elizabeth kept herself hidden. Who would believe her until she was actually showing? And while Elizabeth was pregnant during this time, she praised God in verse 25 saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. God had worked a miracle in her life. God works miracles when he pleases, to whom he pleases, where he pleases. Our God is a miracle-working God. But there are three times in Scripture where he really pours out his miracles repeatedly. He did this during the time of Moses and Aaron. I'm sorry, Moses and, and, and Aaron and Joshua Delivering his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. He then again did it during the time of Elijah and Elisha. Warning Israel's kings to return back to God. And God does it here a third time. Starting right here in this passage with Gabriel's appearance to Zechariah. And Elizabeth's pregnancy of a child who would prepare the way for our Savior, who would heal the sick, raise the dead, feed the hungry, cause the blind to see, and turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. This third era of miracles would start right here with John the Baptist, it would explode with our Lord Jesus Christ, and it would continue into the first several decades of the early church. Our God is a miracle-working God. He chose a woman who was both barren and old, and he took away her reproach among the people. He caused the people to no longer look down upon Zechariah and his wife for not having kids, and instead to be in awe of them for having a child when it was not humanly possible. Skip over with me to remain in chapter 1, but um, look over starting in verse 57. And we'll pick up again and read verses 57 through 66. Now the time for Elizabeth to give birth. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the land of the Lord was with him. So Elizabeth gives birth to a son. Why? Because God keeps his promises. God promised Malachi 400 years ago that he would send a man to prepare the way for the Messiah. He sent Gabriel to tell Zechariah that he and his wife would bring about this man. And finally, John the Baptist has now arrived. God keeps his promises. Long before this, when Joshua and the Israelites conquered the promised land, Joshua told the people, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And long after this, Paul tells us in the book of 2 Corinthians, All the promises of God find their yes in him. God keeps His promises. So after God fulfilled his promise to Zechariah and Elizabeth, her neighbors come over to rejoice with her. Both mom and dad insist upon naming him John instead of Zechariah after his dad. Zechariah's mouth is then opened. He can now speak and hear again. He praises God. And this family became the talk of the town. Everyone was saying in verse 66, what then will this child be? That's the question. After seeing the miracle of John the Baptist born to an elderly couple out of a barren womb, they asked, what then will this child be? Zechariah and Elizabeth already knew the answer. Because back in verse 15, the angel had said, He will be great before the Lord. that's what this child will be. John the Baptist would become so great that the crowds would flock to him in order to hear him and be baptized by him. Jesus himself would speak of John the Baptist saying, "Among those born of women none is greater than John." None is greater. Not Abraham, not Moses, not David, not Solomon. None is greater than John, Jesus said. That's how great John the Baptist would be. So what made him great? What is it about John the Baptist that's so great? When somebody tells me that someone is great, my mind drifts to an athlete a world leader. John the Baptist was neither of those things. In fact, by the world standard, John the Baptist would probably be considered a loser. He was born into a common family, no common education, or no, no, no formal education. His outfit would make you cringe. He'd grow up to be eclectic offensive, eventually imprisoned and killed. John the Baptist was not great by any stretch of the world's definition. And yet Jesus would say, among those born of women, none is greater than John? What is it that made him great? Was it his passion? I mean, this man became one of the most passionate speakers to ever live. He challenged Everybody. He told everyone who came out to hear him, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said, repent. He didn't say, make room in your heart for Jesus. He didn't say, Jesus just really wants you to accept him into your heart. He didn't say any of the filthy nonsense that a lot of pastors say. He said, repent. He was even more bold with the religious leaders. He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? He was even bold with the political leaders, those who had the power to kill him. He told Herod the Tetrarch to his face that he was wrong to take his brother's wife. And he did kill him. John the Baptist was passionate. He had no problem delivering hard words to anybody. He wasn't sucked into the sin of flattery. He didn't sugarcoat his words to make them easier to hear. He called sin, sin. He didn't call it a disorder or a struggle or an addiction. He didn't make room for excuses like, I can't help it. It's how I was born. John the Baptist was passionate. He boldly called sin for what it is sin. Is that what made him great? Maybe it was John's person that made him great. Think about the the kind of person that John the Baptist was. He was unique. He lived in the wilderness. He wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt. And he survived on locusts and wild honey. John the Baptist was strange. he was as humble as could be. At the height of his ministry, when the crowds of people would come to him, he never promoted himself. He always promoted Jesus. He said, He who is mightier than I is coming, the strap whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He was humble. When Jesus finally did begin his ministry, and some of John's own disciples left him to follow Jesus, he wasn't jealous. He was joyful. He said, This joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist was a strange person. And he was incredibly humble. Is that what made him great? What made John the Baptist great was neither his passion nor his person. What made him great was his purpose. His purpose, back in verse 17, was to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's his purpose, to prepare the people for the coming of our Savior. You know, when the President of the United States travels, before he even leaves the White House, Countless people are sent ahead of him to prepare the way for his coming. Secret service agents, they're sent out to organize every last detail. They coordinate with federal and local law enforcement. They determine which airport to use, which airspace to close, which roads to close. They'll identify which hospitals and doctors to have on alert. Entire floors of luxury hotels will be reserved. Catering will be set up just prior to his arrival oftentimes a couple of c17s will precede him carrying all sorts of equipment including his his motorcade which can consist up to 20 suvs after all the president of the united states is important he needs to be kept safe he needs protection when our god stepped off his throne and came down into his creation, he sent one man. One man. Living in the wilderness, wearing camel's hair and eating locusts and wild honey, our God sent one man ahead of him to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. Because our God needs no protection. He needs no pomp. He needs no saving. He's the one who came to save us in the most unannounced, unassuming, and uncharacteristic of ways. Before our Savior was born beside dirty animals in a dirty barn, he sent his strange cousin, John the Baptist, to prepare the way. One man prepared the way for the coming of Jesus Christ. Not hundreds of dignitaries, not thousands of law enforcement. One man. That is what made John the Baptist great. His purpose to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. John the Baptist was the voice Isaiah prophesied about. What we read earlier in our responsive meeting uh, reading. he, He was the voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway before our God. John the Baptist was the one who when he saw Jesus walk toward him. He cried out. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One man with a profound purpose to point the world to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus said, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. <clears throat> That's not all Jesus said. He continued saying, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Really? None is greater than John the Baptist except for every single believer down to the least in the kingdom? How can that be? Because our purpose as Christians is even greater than that of John the Baptist. John's purpose was to tell the world, he's coming, repent, The Messiah is coming. Our purpose is to tell the world He's come. He has come. Our Messiah has come. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has come. So repent, because not only has Jesus come, He's coming again. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, you have come. And so this Advent is a season to give gifts, to be excited, to celebrate. And may we not lose sight of why we celebrate. You came for us. You came for us. You didn't come for that which was worthy. You are the one who is worthy. You came for us. To give us your righteousness. To take upon yourself our sin. You came. We love you. Thank you. Thank you for the purpose. The great purpose that you gave to John the Baptist to prepare the world for your coming. Thank you for the great purpose that you have given us to proclaim the fact that you have come. We love you. We pray this in your son's name.